Hey, welcome to the 104th episode of Two Writers Slinging Yang. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm a former Sports Illustrated senior writer, former ESPN columnist, and the author of multiple New York Times bestsellers. The music you're listening to is Croissants from the great MC White Owl. And this podcast is an ode to writing in all its forms, from sports writing to screenwriting to music critiquing to self-help to song lyrics to whatever genre I'm thinking of. And today's episode stars Seth Wickersham, the terrific ESPN senior writer and famed thespian. And today, when we're not discussing Seth's Academy Award-worthy non-appearance in draft day, we'll be doing something I love, namely digging deep, deep, deep into his story. For this episode, it'll be Seth's absolutely breathtaking 2014 profile of the legendary NFL quarterback Y.A. Tittle, which, for my money, is one of the best pieces of sports writing of the past two or three decades. So prepare for some heavy-duty, blissful sports writing analysis with the star. Right now, two writers... All right, Seth, first of all, thank you for doing this. I, I very thank much you, appreciate man. it. Before I dive into what I want to dive into, I feel like there's a story out there about you that everyone knows except me, which is <laughs> you were in draft day, but then your scene got cut. Is that, is that legit? <laughs> yeah, you know, it was like one of those things where like the publicist reached out to me and like three other people and was like, hey, will you guys play yourselves in this movie? And will you like approach Costner as media members and, and ask them questions about the draft. And and the, the tacit agreement is that, like, you know, you end up writing about it. And so you sort of, you know, they do this in sports movies from time to time. Like, Peter King was in one. But, you know, so you, you basically, you go in there, you, you know, you have one line, and then you write about what it's like to be on a movie set. And they, they don't put any, like, you know, handcuffs on what you can write. They just ask that you write something. So four of us go out to Cleveland. We find out when we get there that our scene has already been cut. And so they kind of shove us into like these other moments. Right. And so, you know, my moment was at the draft day party and I sat next to Dennis Leary and Costner was there and it was wild because they didn't start shooting until like, you know, mid afternoon and they didn't end until midnight, 1 a.m. And by the end of shooting, everybody was so tired. Everybody just wanted to get home. The, the, you know, Dennis Leary was like this fine guy. And in between takes, we would make small talk. I grew up in Alaska, so he loved to talk about Alaska. But by the end of it, everyone was just so tired. And then, you know, the movie comes around and the PR guy is like, well, Seth, what are you going to write? <laughs> and I say, well, you know, I don't know if I'm going to, I don't know if, if ESPN magazine is going to publish anything. You know, you guys cut the scene. And he said, well, you guys gave me a deal. And I said, yeah, I don't know what to tell you. I, I will write about it, but, um, you know, the scene didn't happen. So, you know, he goes, well, let me talk right. to your boss. And at, and at the time, my boss was Chad Millman. And Chad can be, you know, a combative person sometimes. And so uh -huh. I guess that they got on the phone and Chad says, I'm not running anything from this movie because you guys cut the scene. And the PR guy says, he's a very nice guy, but he, he's getting kind of hot at this point. He says, well, sometimes the studio's plans change. And Chad said, yeah, well, sometimes our editorial plans change. <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> so anyway, that's the big story. But we ended up writing something on the website. And, uh, you know, I got to go to the premiere. I do think it's funny that literally it does. I thought you were joking because your Twitter feed mentions it. And then if you go to your IMDb page, <laughs> it literally says, <laughs> Seth Wickersham is an actor known for draft day. I know. I'm very well known for it. 
Yeah. That's actually why I have you on here today, because I wanted to talk about your, your time in draft. We got to talk um, about acting, you know? Yeah, of course. That's awesome. So I, um, you know, you've obviously written a gazillion stories. You've been at ESPN for a long time. And I, I really like the idea of using this podcast sometimes to just take one story and sort of dive deep into it. And, um, we're going back almost five years now, but you wrote a piece July 15th, 2014 called Awakening the Giant. And it was about a, uh, a former, you know, legendary Hall of Fame quarterback, Y.A. Tittle, who has since passed. Uh, the subhead is as Y.A. Tittle's memory fades and his body breaks down, the Hall of Fame quarterback finds fleeting moments of solace in a daughter's love and a final trip home. And it's this freaking great, I mean, great, great, great story. And I'm really a, uh, I don't know about you. I'm a huge fan of sort of finding these guys and almost the retrospective element of it all. And I don't know, I, I, I guess to begin, like, what was the appeal of this? How did this story even come to exist? Yeah, it, it was totally random. So um, at the time, one of our editors was friends with the Tittle family. He was from San Francisco and he said, hey, you know, I heard that Y is not doing very well. You might want to just go check it out the next time you're in San Francisco and just, you know, spend an hour with them and see if you think anything is is there. And so I got in touch with Diane DeLott, who was his daughter, and talked on the phone, I think, twice before I came out there. And then I went out for a different story and um, ended up, uh, you know, spending an afternoon with them. And, you know, I found, like, the the ecosystem you know, that, that was their family just fascinating. And, um, you know, I found out during that trip that, you know, they take this annual trip down to East Texas where he's from and they've taken it for 28 straight years. And at the time his health was horrible and his dementia was horrible and they didn't know if they were going to be able to do it. And, and his daughter kind of made it her mission to accomplish this trip. Um, both to sort of see her dad you know, as he was and to also sort of give him this final gift. And, um, you know, once I knew about that, that's when I was like, that's what I'm going to end up writing about. And so the trip got delayed a couple of times because of his health, but you know, at the end of the day, that's what my repertorial antenna went up. And that was the way I knew the story had to go. And it was an unusual story for me because I don't do a lot of, um, you know, retrospective stories like that. I don't, you, you know, usually the athletes I'm writing about are, are current athletes. And here he was, he was 87 years old. And it was, it was just quite a bit. It was such a departure from the things that I usually do. Is it hard to, um, you know, to write about someone who is in the midst of really, really bad dementia um, and not come off as pitying or sort of a belittling is the wrong word. Cause obviously not belittling, but you're writing about a guy who's not even really there anymore, who's half there, who's in and out. Does it require something of the writer that's really hard to sort of, I don't know, walk a line that's kind of hard to walk? Or am I overstating this to yeah, some degree? It's different. No, I get what you're saying. And, the, you know, I think that, like, the family, I think, was worried that, you know, clearly he'd have moments, you know, that, you know, they'd wonder, am I writing about that? Or how is it going to appear? Or, you know, is he going to be sort of mocked in the story or, you know, not that I would like mock him, but just, you know, 
does the end result look like, you know, someone who, um, is kind of embarrassed and like, you know, I guess I was just kind of fortunate. The family just kind of let me in and YA let me in. And I mean, you know, I really enjoyed hanging out with him and he was like, um, you know, he, at first he doesn't know, you know, he doesn't remember who you are, but then once he sees your face a little bit, he just sort of invites you in as part of like his region, I guess. So that part of it was just cool. And, and, and you know, in a weird way, I, I spent so much time with them and, you know, I got so much material and I was able to, you know, you know how it is. Sometimes when you write these stories, you get minutes with people sometimes, or, you, you know, and you're trying to find something real in that exchange. And this was a, I was fortunate in this story in the sense that I witnessed like a lot of really real moments that were able to carry the story and it eased the burden off of me needing to describe him excessively or, um, you know, use things that, you know, weren't quite as ripe or as necessary but, you know, being in the position of having to use them because it was sort of what I had. So I was kind of lucky in that sense. He wrote, um, he remembers a place that is in Texas. On a December morning, he's sitting in his usual spot on his couch, flipping through a photo album. His breathing is labored. There's fluid in his lungs. Waistline aside, title doesn't look much different. Uh, Tittle doesn't look much different now than he did in his playing days. Bald head, high cheekbones, blue eyes that glow from deep sockets, ears that have yet to be grown into. His skin is raw and flaky. And when he scratches a patch on his head, a familiar line of blood sometimes trickles down. When you're writing about people and you're trying to describe people's physical appearances, what are you looking for? And sort of how do you decide? Like, I, I think it's interesting. You said skin is raw and flaky. Like, flaky is a really great freaking word. Like, I just made um, chicken pot pie last night for my family and the biscuits were flaky. <laughs> it's the first thing I thought of was kind of flaky. Like, how do you decide how to, what adjectives to use, how to describe what? what 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 should you not be writing about when you describe someone? Is there a way to do it compassionately when something is ugly? You know, one of our writers, Tom Juno, is like one of my like you know writing He's heroes, great. and he he always writes about people's faces. Whenever he profiles them, he always always usually will spend you know he can often write like an entire paragraph about people's faces, but he always does it. And so I think that when I was writing that, you know, I'm like, okay, I'm gonna you know describe just what his face looks like in a couple lines here. And just try to do it in a way that I don't have to like go over the top or, or, you know, strain to try to do it. Let's just say what he looks like. And, you know, I remember when I wrote that story, um, I structured the first three sections in a way that ended up working, but was kind of accidental where I began with a description of the, the photo that he's famous for, which is him after he threw an, an interception and he's on his knees and, you know, he's got blood trickling down from his face. And, you know, it's just one of those famous, iconic sports pictures that sort of, you know, showed somebody who was beaten down and broken. And then, and I, but, but when I wrote that paragraph, it was originally later in the story. And I think that it was in that section that you just read from. And so my editor, Eric Neal, actually suggested pulling that out because, and beginning with it because he was like, you know, People might not necessarily know who he is now, but they'll remember this picture and it's a good way to sort of introduce him. And so that's why I began, you know, you remember the picture because, 
not only because of the word remember, it's obviously a story about a man with dementia, but I wanted to, you know, introduce the reader to him, you know, as they knew him. And then the next section is, is what you read from is him in his house. And I'm introducing the reader to who he is now. And then in the third section, I'm introducing his daughter who ends up being, you know, kind of the main character in the story. So, you, you know, it was, it was a very like concerted effort to try to, um, you know, build the story that way before we got into the action of the actual trip. Do you actually, um, I've never done this, but I think, I, do you map the story out before you write it or do you just write? I usually just write, but I like knowing where it ends. You know, I think that like, usually I struggle when I don't know the ending. It doesn't mean that like I've written out the ending, but if, if I know where the, the end of the map is, you know, it's easier to kind of take detours or, or figure out the way there. Um, you know, and I think that Chris Jones was the one who really kind of like, you know, I learned that from, you know, he was somebody who he always begins his magazine stories, um, at the end, like he always writes his endings first. And, um, you know, I was well into my career before that occurred to me or, you know, before I noticed that, but it really made a lot of sense because you often spend so much time on the beginning and then are like, okay, I finished the beginning. Where do we go now? And I've never been like a great student of, of doing these detailed outlines. You know, sometimes they're a little bit necessary, but I usually try not to. Um, but you know, when Chris, it, you know, admitted that that's, you know, part of his process, it really made a lot of sense to me. And I usually find that I struggle with stories when I don't adhere to that advice, which is kind that's of, interesting. you know, yeah, it's kind of, you know, I don't know how, I don't know how it goes for books. You know, I mean, obviously so many of your books are, you know, chronological order. They're either, you know, a look at a team or a look at a person. Um, I'd be curious. I mean, do you end like, how do you, how do you structure that? <laughs> I don't know. I'm just I just kind of, I mean, you know, the thing is like Walter Payton died. The Mets season ended. Far yeah, yeah, yeah. There is an end. Like it kind of just, there is an ending there, you know? <laughs> mm-hmm. That's funny. That's Wait, true. so do you actually write the ending? Do you actually write, will you write the ending to a story before other parts of the story? I'll write a version of it or I'll know what the idea that I'm trying to say in it is. I don't know if like, you know, I'll, you know, usually I'll use some of the, you know, the momentum from the story to kind of help the ending. But if I know the idea or the moment that I'm ending on, it just really helps. Wait, this is really fascinating to me because, um, so when I came along at Sports Illustrated, the magazine was going through a really bad phase that I definitely participated in, which is you would have the lead, you'd have the story, and then the ending, the last line of the story would relate directly to the lead. I'm literally making hand signals like you can see it as I do it. Mm-hmm. So it would be like the lead would be, be about some defensive lineman who loves, who has a pet pig, right? And at the end, the last line of the story would be like, and that's not bacon like that. You know, like there'd be a ton of stories. Like, like, do you, do you, yeah. do you think, can, do you need a rap to end a story? Like, do you need a, definitive conclusion where the reader says, okay, I'm good. Now I've I've done it. Or can you just, can you just end? Yeah, that's an interesting, I think the goal would rather to be, you know, to have an ending rather than a kicker. Does that make sense? Yeah. And so, you know, I think that when you're doing these stories, I think the goal is to, you know, know the ending of it rather than just sort of like, you know, trying to, 
have a quick line that, that may be a little pithy and, but comes full circle. But that said, sometimes you need the, you know, sometimes you need a kicker and, you know, I don't, um, there have been a lot of great kickers written both in the history of sports illustrated and in other places. So, you know, I'm not judging the kicker in any way. Uh huh. It's so funny. Not, but if we were doing a sports illustrated kicker to this podcast, since I started by talking about draft day, I would end it by saying, and now he's been, he's had his draft day on this podcast. Yeah. God. Yeah. There was like that, that moment where in, um, you know, when Dan Jenkins died um, a couple months ago, I reread You Gotta Play Hurt, and I haven't read that since, you know, I was in college. And, um, you know, he has that moment where he makes fun of the, the you know, the magazine editor, you know, who's based on some Sports Illustrated editor where, you know, he's writing about, I think it was, um, I think it was Joe Montana. And, you know, the, the editor cut his ending and had a kicker that was like, you know, which he did and how, <laughs> you know, something like that. <laughs> it was pretty funny. It, it cracked me up, but like, you know, I don't know. Sometimes I guess like, you know, that's the, uh, you know, that's the, that's the best idea you've got. I mean, I definitely remember that era of sports illustrated. I mean, I was influenced by it and, you know, I remember, you know, you and there was a host of people who got hired, you know, pretty young out of college to yeah. write for SI. And it was one of those things where I was like, wow, that exists. Like, yeah. People hire people that young. Like, I want that. You know, it's kind of like yeah. just an awesome, awesome way to get a journalism career and, and an education. Yeah, I would say so. But I would say I was overeducated in the kicker. And now you never <laughs> see it anymore. I feel like that was almost like an interesting phase in sports writing because you really don't see. <laughs> when's the last time you read an article? If you think about it, that ended with a like, and that's blah, blah, blah. Like, it really doesn't happen anymore. And there was a big thing. I know. There's probably a good oral history of kickers. <laughs> you can write it the oral history of that. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Um, you, um, I mean, you mentioned this earlier, like his daughter, Diane was a huge, mm-hmm. huge piece of the story. And obviously she kind of made the story possible. Um, it's interesting. Like I actually thought this piece was going to be a lot more about his football career. And I was relieved. It wasn't like, it seems like you easily could have been like, and then he went to LSU and he did this, this, and this. And then afterwards he went to the, you know, and then he went here. There was very little, like the story was much more about a dad, his, his fade from sort of existence, the daughter and the crushing experience he's going through and significantly less about this guy's football career. Um, was that a sort of, you know, conscious decision there? Or was it just the way it kind of rolled? Yeah, I guess I ended up writing about him through her eyes, you know, and so, and, and, and in that way, um, you know, she saw him as this athlete and also, you know, as, as something else. And yet, like, you know, she's, you know, she's into Greek mythology. She was a professional harpist. I mean, she is not someone who, um, you know, was into professional sports and yet she was captivated by her dad is this kind of hero. And, you know, Y.E. Tittle was, was famous throughout his career for, you know, losing championship games and for, you know, that picture, which, you know, just looks like someone who had been beaten down. And, you know, she saw a kind of hero and, and, and honor in him that, um, I found really interesting and, and very captivating. And, um, you know, I think that that's, so when I wrote about his career, I think that it was mostly through her lens. Um, 
because she saw his defining moments differently. You know, she saw someone who, um, you know, would, would lose these championship games and, you know, would come home and, and he was, you know, sore and angry. And, you know, she saw something real in that, that was admirable that, um, you know, ran counter to the narrative of his career. And so I really like that, you know, as a journalist, you know, there's nothing like busting a myth. It's like crack for journalists. And then, you know, to try to show it organically through somebody else's eyes is, you know, was really cool. I think, I just think like, I'm looking at, you wrote, you know, deep in the story, he was famous during his 17 year career as a backup with the Colts, as a star with the 49ers and as a legend with the Giants for not only playing through pain, but for retaining a wit in the face of crushing losses. Um, but Diane has watched her dad regress in inches too small to notice during daily visits from a nearby house, but devastating when considered in their totality. And that is pretty much your summation of his football career. Like there are little pieces here and there, <laughs> but I love that. I just think this story easily, easily, easily could have been a sort of boring look. Here he is. He, yeah, I mean, you lead with him. He has dementia. But once upon a time, he was a strapping football player. Here he was at college. You find some clip from the LSU student newspaper in 19 whatever. Then you go out like you easily could have made this a really cliched look back at his football career. And I could see a lot of editors being like, well, we need more football in here. There's not enough football in here. And you didn't do that at all, which makes it a great freaking story. I don't know. Thanks. Thanks. It was not only you know, not only the cliched look back at the athlete, but a cliched look at with of an athlete with dementia which sounds horrible to say, but it's kind of true. I mean, there's just so many stories that have been written about football players who are suffering from the game that they played. And, you know, I was worried about having this feel like one of those. And I don't think that he had dementia from football. I mean, obviously I'm sure that football didn't help. I mean, he was 87 years old and, you know, a lot of people have dementia at that stage and there was never any thought from the family that it was related to to football. But you know, that was my other concern is just, you know, I didn't want people to see the word dementia and stop right there. (laughs) You know, like, okay, I've seen this before. And, you know, I think alluding to the other point, I mean, I just saw so much, you know, you know how it is with your books. And I mean, I try to do this in, in, in stories is, you know, you recreate, you, you know, you can't be there for every great moment. You recreate scenes and, this was one of those weird stories where everything just happened in front of me. And I was just literally writing it down. I barely had to ask any questions. I, I just had to just watch it unfold. And that's really rare. That just doesn't happen that often with, with stories. And so, um, uh, you know, I, I think that like, because I was just witnessing all this live action, I never really even thought about getting, really into his football career. It just, it just, it didn't seem as relevant. Are you taping as you're with him or just writing? I was writing things down. I used my iPad and I taped some things like the song at the end, you know, where they, they sing amazing grace. I actually have a video of that. Um, but you know, usually what I was doing was I had my iPad in a notebook and you know, they kind of, you know, it's easy to carry around both of them and, you know, so I would just mostly um, hang around and then, you know, be taking notes and, um, you know, that was, you know, I'd record some moments where like the dialogue was moving too fast to write down. But, you know, for the most part, um, 
I was taking notes. The whole story kind of leads up to this party. He has this party every year, <laughs> except, except all his friends are dead, basically. So like <laughs> the party that used to be this grand old, you know, bash every year has kind of become this sad thing. And you wrote, you mentioned Amazing Grace. I mean, it's a freaking beautiful scene here. The musicians move inside to the living room. YA gives his all to hobble closer to them, one foot barely shuffling in front of the other. He sits on the couch coughing. It is past his bedtime. Only six or so people remain, which is a really important little sense there. YA holds his watered-down vodka, but doesn't drink, humming along to country songs. Then someone plays the opening chords to Amazing Grace. Oh, God, YA says. And this I love. His face reddens like dye touching water. His eyes turn pink and wet. His breathing becomes deep and heavy. He brings his left fist to his eye, then puts down his drink, and soon both hands are pressed against his face. Memories are boiling up. Only he, only he, only he knows what, and soon they will be gone. The only thing that's clear is that Y.A. Tedal is finally whole. He opens his mouth but can't speak. He stares at the ground, his face glossy and damp, and begins to mouth the words, I once was lost, but now I'm found. That's fucking great, man. That's great. Like, that's just great. So good. I did. Go. I did nothing, man. I just. I was on the couch. I just watched it happen. Um, yeah. I mean, that. You know, the entire arc of the story was Diane bringing Y home, hoping that you know she would get this glimpse of um, who he was, and to give him this gift of you know being. He loved the party not only because it was fun, but because he could sort of be Y A Tittle again. And you know, yeah. as you know, when you write about athletes after they retire, I mean it's incredibly difficult to go from being in the center of the universe to, you know, being part of the orbit. And, you know, she wanted to give that to him. And, you know, the entire trip was just so devastating for her. There was a few good moments, but it was mostly just very sad. I think at one point, you know, she said, you're witnessing a family tragedy because what she was hoping for to get out of the trip wasn't going to happen. And then, you know, this moment happened where they were playing that song and something clicked with him. And the next morning it was really weird. And I mean, it, this is beyond my capacity to describe, but like there just are miracles about memory and there's miracles about the way the brain and the human body work that are unexplainable because the next morning he was different. And like, it wasn't just me who noticed it, but it was like he had had some mini breakthrough that crystallized in that moment when they play that song. And, you know, the next morning he was just, he was telling different stories. He was conversing in a way that wasn't consistent with somebody who had had the dementia that he had. I mean, he, his memory loop at that point in his life was, you know, he'd repeat himself every couple minutes. And here he was telling completely new stories in a way that, um, it just lit up the room. I'll never forget that. It was a really, it was a really cool moment to witness. And again, as a journalist, like, you know, you spend so much time thinking about questions and when to deploy this question and that one. And I mean, with this story, I just sat there and I watched it and tried to make sense of it. And that was really, really fun. I don't know if I've ever, I've never had an experience doing that ever where like, you know, it's like that Springsteen line, the poets down here don't write nothing at all. They just stand back and let it all be. I mean, I was just standing back and letting it all be. It was really cool. Yeah, that's pretty amazing. There's a, um, I had to grab this off my kid's shelf, but I wrote, you know, I wrote a Walter Payton biography years ago. Yeah. And when I was researching it, I found a poem and there was no, they didn't even know who wrote it. It was called The Athlete. And I put it in the front of the book and it's very short. It said, uh, most of life is a falling away. 
a gradual surrender of the dream. The reason sports provide such dramatic material is that the climax comes so early in a man's life, the decline so swiftly. I just think um, Walter Payton, Wyatt Tittle, like there's something about the aftermath of an athlete that is, I've used this term before, for, for sports writers, definitely for me, is kind of catnip in its, in, in a way, in the heartbreak of it all. Like it's really, yeah. I read this story and I was like the end of the story and this is not an indictment. It's a comedy. I was really sad after reading this story. I just, I just think the aftermath of, a, of an athlete is fascinating, but pretty crushing. You're right. I mean, you look at, you know, obviously Wright Thompson's great story on Michael Jordan. I mean, that was a look at a very like sad human being <laughs> who, you know, couldn't figure out a way to be happy in life. And in fact, the things that he, he had used to make him great conspired against his happiness as, as an adult, you know, as an older man. Um, right. you know, I wrote about John Elway. It was kind of similar, you know, obviously it wasn't anywhere near as visceral, but you know, I think that like, you're just absolutely right. Where like these guys turn around and they have so much of their life yet to live. You, you know, Joe Namath is somebody who comes to mind also. And like, they struggle. There's no doubt about it. And, you know, I think I put in the Y.A. Tittle story that, you know, after they, after he retired, I mean, you know, the parents were fighting all the time. Diane once lost her voice because she was screaming at his parents, at her parents to stop screaming. Right. Yeah. I mean, obviously the, you know, the Walter Payton book was a great book. Um, it's one of those things that I think if you're, I've never written a biography, but I'd imagine that it, it's one of the blessings of it even if it ends up reading more sad, it's just that like you get to explore this entire second part of someone's life that, you know, was away from the spotlight and away from the team and away from the things that made them famous. It's really heartbreaking. I mean, I always think it whenever I watch a, uh, like the football life series on NFL mm-hmm. network and they'll have, you know, his career and then they'll have the aftermath and there'll be some trouble, but then they'll quickly get back to the career and they'll play yeah. some sort of uplifting music as he talks about that time. And I always think like, wait, 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 get back to that part about the, you know, him bankrupting <laughs> on his, on his bar, because that's really fascinating. You know, like that Elway story you did was terrific. And I, I have in front of me and you wrote, um, about Elway. You said the very idea of a comfortable life feels like death. Elway knows he will be a geezer one day, his body surrendering to life the way it surrendered to football. But the biological imperative, the compulsion to win will still be there, trapped in an irreversible sentence. And so he leans in over his desk, unveiling that familiar grin and utters maybe the most Elway thing ever. I've always thought I was going to die with a shovel in case I woke up. I could dig my way out. Like yeah. these guys don't, they just don't know what to do after. Totally. It just, yeah. yeah. And I mean, I wrote this story on on Bill Walsh on this book that Bill Walsh wrote and it was this coaching book and it was like I have it on the shelf and they only have they only printed a limited run of them and they're kind of these like Bibles in the coaching fraternity and they cost hundreds and hundreds of dollars online to get. And Bill Walsh wrote this book because he was so unhappy with his coaching career and the way that, you know, he wished he hadn't retired when he did. He didn't know what to do. He was really resentful of the, that the 49ers won a Super Bowl after he had left with his team. And, you know, he needed to feel he needed to be the genius again. And so he tried to, you know, put everything that he knew about football into this book. And, you know, I wrote about the process of him writing this book and it was a complete mess. I mean, we can all relate to it as, as a writer. I mean, you know, you have all these different ideas of what you want to do and, you know, at the end of the day, he wrote this, this book that was so big and so all encompassing 
that no one could read it. And so then he ended up writing another book right after it that, you know, was something digestible. And yet the thing that he put his entire life into that ended up reflecting on like a lot of his torture and his genius better than like he could ever do was this thing that nobody bought and, you know, only coaches really know about. So it's just an interesting theme that, you know, again, it's like these guys walk away and yet there's all these things that they have to do with their life and aren't really sure how to do them. I want to ask you one thing I was curious about. You wrote in the story, at one point you said, he hollers at Anna to bring him a vodka rocks and makes a few crude jokes. And I was wondering, is there a temptation to write the, let's say he makes a, I don't know, a gay joke, a black joke, a whatever joke, a bottle of a joke. Does the context of this guy having dementia, being a guy from Texas, being a guy who's 87, uh, sort of take those off the table? You know, they weren't that, they were crude in the sense that like, if I remember right, they were about him wanting to like go back to like the strip in town and yeah. like check out women or something like that. So it was like they were uh, maybe crude wasn't quite the best word for it because they weren't like obnoxious right. and they weren't like demeaning. They were sort of like a little like, hey, old man, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, right. really, do we need to do we all need to hear that type of type of jokes? But they weren't like, you know, off color or anything like that. They were just. And the way that he said them, they were a little awkward. And so I think the reason why I sort of summate, you know, sum them was I think it would have taken more to explain what he was getting at and it wasn't worth the payoff at the end of the day. Um, right. I, you know, I think I, I think that was more the thought of it rather than, um, you know, kind of protecting him in any way. Before we continue with two writers singing Yang, quick word from our sponsor. Hey, dad, guess what? What? I found. Get ready, a penny. Well, you know what they say, um, a penny a day is, uh, okay. Hey dad, I just found, get this, a dime. Well, you know what they say, a dime a mile is, uh, good luck for a while. Did you make that up? No, it's true, for real. Hey dad, I love my 503 sports jersey. Well, you know what they say, a 503 sports jersey is the best jersey you will ever find in the entire universe with a wide variety of leagues and designs which can be accessed by going to 503-sports.com. I believe you now. Let me ask you this. I have a lot of, uh, come across a lot of young journalists and aspiring sports writers, and, and they tell you sort of what they want their careers to be. And they'll say, I want to do what Wright Thompson does, or I want to do what Seth does, or John Wertheim, or Grant Wall, or blah, blah, blah. And I really want to write these long, meaty features and blah, blah, blah. Is that still a very attainable goal in sports media? I do. I think so. Like, in fact, like, um, I have to, I, I can't give names, but, you know, uh, I have a friend who, who works at another media outlet and he was asking me for salary negotiating advice, which, you know, if he, he would have, he had no idea how bad of a decision it was to ask me for advice on this stuff. But, I'm trying to be a good friend and I help him. And he told me what he made and I was really um, happy for him, <laughs> you know, just hearing that because I have no idea what people make. And I worry, you know, you're always like, okay, God, you know, to these writers that are young that I, whose work, you know, I think is good. And, you know, they could really grow into be fantastic journalists, you know, are they making enough to live on? And, you know, to hear a healthy six figure salary for a relatively young writer writing features, I was really, you know, encouraged by that. And, you know, I also think that, 
you know this better than anybody. I mean, it comes back to reporting. I mean, a lot of people want to write long stories, but you have to be able to report them. And I mean, I could do a podcast where I just talk to you about the process of writing, you know, how you report your books and how you organize them and how, you know, they've become, you get so close to what it was like during a particular period in a locker room that, you know, fans almost don't want to hear about it. <laughs> you yeah. know, I mean, sometimes you, you face this blowback because it's like people don't want to know what it was like on a day to day basis. And yet you're able to get to that granular level. And, you know, obviously, like there's a market for that and there's a market for it in publishing. And hopefully there's a market for it in more immediate journalism. I think there is. Your bio still lists, you know, ESPN, the magazine, you know, yeah. senior writer and, and ESPN, the magazine is soon to cease. Uh, existing as a print publication. Should we take that as a, I'm saying we as in sports journalists as a whole, should, should we take that as a uh, warning shot to the industry or should we just see it, do you think, as a reality that print is sort of fading, fading, fading away? Yeah, I think that it's, well, I would definitely say the the latter. I mean, we're going to keep doing the work without the, without the, the print deadline. But, um, you know, we all know friends who have worked in magazines and I mean, it's been nothing but reduction for a long time. And, um, you know, I think that the thing that I've always loved about working at ESPN is I think that like, even as this industry was receding and even when it was at its peak in terms of revenue for ESPN, I mean, that's, a, you know, that's a rounding error in ESPN's portfolio. Um, you know, ESPN never sacrificed the work. I mean, they never said, Hey, you can't take this trip. It's too expensive. You can't do this. You can't do that. Hey, um, you know, don't chase that story. Let's focus on star athletes. I mean, you know, if it was a good story, they let you pursue it. And, um, you know, I know people who work at other magazines who are just under different, um, constraints than we've ever been under at ESPN. And I'm really like, you know, fortunate and, and lucky about that. I think that it's, you know, I'm sad that the magazine's, you know, not going to be printed. Um, but you know, I'm, I'm happy that it gets to die with a bit of dignity and I'm proud of, you know, it's a major part of my life. I, I owe so much of my life to, to that place. And, um, you know, I'm just, I'm happy that we got to do it as long as we did. I always think the gauge is the airport. The airport gauge, <laughs> gauge is, 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 it's on a hundred percent of the time, which is you go into the mini marts in the airport, the magazine section gets smaller and smaller and smaller by the, by the month. And then when you get off a plane, remember when early on, when you would fly for whatever story and you get off the plane, then there'd be newspapers, old newspapers stuffed in the seat pockets, magazines. Yeah. I'd walk off the plane. I'd grab a time magazine. Someone left. Or I'd grab an ESPN, the magazine. You see nothing. Maybe you see one newspaper now, but that's it. You know, you go to a food court at an airport and, you know, nobody's reading magazines. They're just all on their yeah. phones. And, yeah. you know, that's the world we're living in right now. Let me ask you a final thing. This is almost like a personal question out of, uh, it's like a, uh, me going for self-help. <laughs> I find that my attention span when I write is not what it used to be. I am always going to Twitter, going to Facebook, looking at this, looking at that. Uh, you know, I, I struggle in ways I feel like I did not in the past to just an hour. I'm just going to write for an hour. I'm going to write. What about you? Are you, are you just locked in? No problem whatsoever, man. I wish I could tell you, I don't know. It's like, I think that you kind of catch waves, right? And you know, you just ride the wave as long as you possibly can until it peters out. I think that's the way I look at it. Like, you know, when I'm on deadline, I tend to write really early in the morning or late at night and there's just less going on. Fewer people are bugging me. 
My phone isn't ringing as much. The news for the day has happened, so it's not like I'm wondering, you know, what I'm missing. I mean, it is bizarre how, like, you can be on an airplane for three hours. If it doesn't have Wi-Fi, you felt like you've missed, like, a week's right. worth of news, you know? Um, so I guess that that's it for me. I mean, everybody has their different process, you know? I don't... The main thing is you just... You got to get it done one way or the other, and, you know, that's just, you know, the one that works for me. But, I mean, Ray Thompson, I mean, he gets up... When he's on deadline, I mean, he gets up at, like, 6.30, and he'll go until, like, one thirty, and then he's just done for the day. Whereas, like, I'll go probably through lunch... And then, you know, I'll do some other stuff in the afternoon. And then after the kids go to bed, I'll pick it up and keep going until like 1 a.m. I guess, you know, it's woefully inefficient and it's exhausting. But I guess that's just kind of like the best. The hardest thing is to hit your creative. You have to just keep grinding until you find, you know, that wave, that creative wave that you can just ride as long as you possibly can. And, you know, for some people, there are shortcuts. For some people, coffee helps. Alcohol helps. Nothing works for me except just writing until, you know, I happen to hit that one line where I can stretch an idea out a little bit. Do you go through these moments when you go, fucking fuck, this is the worst fucking story ever. God damn, this is, this is, this is the worst. This is, this is the worst. This is the story that is the worst story ever. Do you have those moments? I think it's like, what am I not doing right? <laughs> like, I don't blame the story. It's like, I'm blaming myself. Like, why have I not been able to find this? Like yeah. Gary Smith would have written an, a great story by now. Like, why can't I even figure out how to get myself through one section? Like, I think it's more like yeah. that or yeah. it's like you become more self-critical. Where you're like, well, I've done this before when maybe like I didn't have, you know, perfect access to somebody or, you know, whatever it is. I've been on a tight deadline, whatever it is. But it's like, I kind of like, it's more self-loathing than it is being mad at the material. Yeah. It's like, I, this used to connect. Like, why is this not connecting right now? What am I doing well, I wrong? Think, you know what I do think? I really do think, I think it's important to remind people at all different experiences, whether you're a high school writer, whether you're a college writer, a small paper, whatever. This stuff is hard. Like, I remember, you know, like Gary Smith is a great example where I read Riley or Russian. Why can't it be as easy for me as it is for them? And you realize they're tortured too. Like, this stuff is... Yeah, it's hard for them. Yeah, it's hard. It's just hard. When Springsteen released his, uh, he released a box set for the Darkness on the Edge of Town album. And of course that album is, you know, a lot of people think it's his best album and it's definitely a turning point in him, in terms of him as a writer because he's so much leaner than he used to be. I mean, you know, he had these songs when he was younger that were going for six, seven minutes all the time. And these were really lean verses. And when he released the, the box set, it came with a carbon copy of his notebook that he wrote all the songs in and it's a great like affirmation to the writing process because he has so many awful lyrics in that notebook, like wow. songs that go on for pages and pages. And then, you know, after a page and a half, he'll find one line and circle it. And, you know, that's the first line of what would later become a song. And, you know, it was just like a great, Again, it's something that just sort of like, it makes you feel a little bit better. It's not just you that like, this shit is right. hard. I mean, like, even the people who are the very best at it really, really struggle with it. That's really actually good to hear. Because I always feel like, I always say, look, I can't complain because it's not as hard as fill in the blank, saving lives, digging dishes, whatever. Being, But it is mentally taxing. And I feel like. It's physically maybe, taxing. And it is just taxing. Yeah. But, you know, I feel like my. My my friend who works at the bank or my friend who works at the law firm, 
doesn't want to hear me whining about having to write about my interview with Shaquille O'Neal. Like they just don't want to hear it. So it's nice to have Seth here to complain to. So thank you. Well, it's, yeah. And, and so much of writing is like subjective, right? Where it's like, yeah. you know, you can ask six people to read a story and like, it's rare if all six people agree that it's good. It's just, yeah. you know, so much of this stuff is subjective. Yeah. I will tell you one thing that's not subjective though. And that is that draft day was a, would have been a much finer movie. <laughs> And is sitting at 60% on Rotten Tomato, but would have been, I'm, I'm thinking 65 <laughs> to 70 if they had kept your scene set or if it filmed your scene. They didn't film your scene. So see, that's a good ending. It's not a kicker, but it's a good ending. Yeah. And that's no tomato. I don't, anyway. <laughs> uh, Seth, seriously, I, uh, I'm glad we finally did that. I really appreciate you doing this. This is, uh, this is great. So thank you so much. Thank you, man. I want to thank today's guest, Seth Wickersham, for joining me on Two Riders Sling and Yang. You can follow Seth on Twitter at Seth Wickersham and read his work in ESPN the magazine and at ESPN.com. This podcast is sponsored by 503 Sports, kings of the throwback sports merchandise. You can visit the website at 503-sports.com. One can listen to Two Riders Sling and Yang on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and truly, I could really use the reviews. They are appreciated. Music is by the dazzling MC Whiteow. Thanks again for joining me. And remember... Keep writing.